Let's get our Bibles open to the book of Mark this morning. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. 12 through 25. All right. Well, we're going to read God's Word this morning. We're going to start with just reading through this text, verses 12 through 25, and then, uh, and then we'll pray. And we have lots to cover, and we're going to we'll just dive in. So join me as we, we can look and consider God's Word. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of wolves, a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Join me in prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, we, we have been encountering your grace and your mercy this morning through song and through your word and, and, and reminded this morning that, that we can come and worship and pray because of what you have done on our behalf, Jesus. We can approach you. We can come into your presence we can gather as your, as your people because of your faithfulness, your steadfast love, what you have done, Jesus, in your life and death and resurrection. And, and uh, we are coming to your word this morning to, to understand all, that that, all the implications, all of what you have done in order to, to beautify that, to bring greater faith to our hearts in that. And so this word we're opening that is... That is breathed out by you God by the spirit uh, the spirit that spirit dwells within each of us God and so we can uh, we can learn we can grow we can uh, be transformed and so do that this morning by your spirit I ask uh, ask you Lord amen amen well 
it's not every week in studying and preparing for my sermon that I open a commentary to just examine particular texts and scriptures, and I read something like this in the commentary. This is one of the most difficult stories in the Gospels. It is not found in Luke. Did he too have problem with it and omit it, or was it unknown to him? Many, many modern commentators would just as soon it were not here at all. Well, that's encouraging <laughs> for average pastors, not biblical scholars, coming to a text. The most difficult story in the Gospels? Well, why? Well, it's controversial, there's confusion. The arguments that go around the story have made people consider this is maybe just made up. It wasn't factual. Uh, it seems contrary to Jesus' character. He's accusing. People would just call him ill-tempered. Or one commentary mentioned he just this vindictive fury that comes from Jesus, cursing trees and tossing tables over like a spoiled child that just doesn't get his way. What's wrong with this guy? This doesn't seem to be the same guy that we've been monitoring through the book of Mark. So some were just resolved to ignore it or just simply throw it out. But thankfully, in the challenge, whenever we come to scriptures, ones that even are startling, we can understand them, maybe not as easily as others, but we can by the Spirit's help. And in Mark, when we, thankfully, we come to one of his literary features that we've been seeing many times, what we call the, the Markin sandwich, where he, he uses sort of this ABA sort of flow where there's two similar stories and then a third story that's in the middle that doesn't seem to connect, but it helps us understand all that's going on. It kind of unlocks, it's like a key for us. And as well, this morning, we're going to look at a lot of Old Testament scriptures and passages because they a lot of what's going on points back. And so we're going to look at the Old Testament to help us interpret and understand this text this morning. So lots to cover. Buckle up is what I'm telling you. So what's happening? Well, before we get to this, we have to rewind a little bit and look at what happened in the first section in chapter 11. So if your Bible's open, you can see there verses 1 through 11. Your header probably says the triumphal entry. Now, Josh preached a sermon on this text on Palm Sunday, just weeks back as we were around Easter. And we kind of just did a fast forward a little bit. Um, I encourage you to go listen to that. It's an excellent sermon. But Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. We know from last week that as we talked about, that's where he was heading. And the crowds greet him with palm branches and throwing their clothes down on the ground. And Jesus is riding on a donkey. And they're ready to crown him king. They're shouting, Hosanna, which means help or the save us. Their expectation was a king who would ascend to an earthly throne. In their mind, they have Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey. So they had that king in mind. Their expectations, however, were, were a little bit contrary to Jesus' plan at that moment. They, they didn't have the humble part in view the suffering servants from Isaiah 53 who would come and give his life, life as a ransom, a substitute for sin, who would, who's heading towards his cross to suffer, die, and rise. To quote Josh Montague, the crowd was celebrating a coronation, 
But Jesus was heading to his execution. So there was applause. There was the parade. And afterward, he and the 12 disciples head up to the temple. Now the temple was the the focal point, the apex of the worship of God's people, where his presence was, where prayer and worship was. And, and the Jews were pouring into Jerusalem or were, uh, had to come and bring sacrifices there at the temple. It was Passover week. It was, it's estimated that over 100,000 to 250,000 visitors would come in to Jerusalem during this time. The city was bustling. Worship of God was anticipated. But now, towards the end of those verses in verse 11, the crowd disappeared. It's evening. It's just the 12, and it's late, and Jesus enters into the temple. And he, it says he, he looks around the temple. Not like he was in Paris, like sightseeing, taking selfies with his disciples. It, it's more like Jesus is looking around with a clipboard, and he's inspecting. He's evaluating the condition, the spiritual condition of the temple. And it, it wasn't pretty. See, today's story, we don't have babies sitting on Jesus' lap and him bouncing them and fun conversations around the dinner table, but radical healings of blind men. No, this, the tone is, is changing here. We, things are getting intense and grim and Jesus is not telling people to keep it secret when he does a miracle anymore. It's out in the open. And he's in Jerusalem. And so, they leave the temple. They stay in a very nearby town and small village. And they, our text picks up where they're entering back into Jerusalem. Jesus' destination is the temple. And it says that Jesus is hungry. As they're walking, he sees a tree, a fig tree, with leaves. And he walks up, and it says he, he looks around at the tree. He inspects the tree. Sound familiar? Jesus then does something very bizarre. He, he curses the tree. Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. The disciples heard this love how Mark maybe is just cluing us into the maturity of the disciples as they're going. They're listening well now. This is the only destructive miracle in the Gospels. And he does so on what seems an innocent tree. I mean, it tells us it wasn't in season. I mean, this doesn't seem fair, Jesus. I mean, what did the tree do to you? I, this is part of why we end up with vexed scholars so what, how do we make sense of this? Well, a couple things. One is the notation of the leaves. Now, I'm not a botanist, but I'm trying to study and understand what's going on here. But as I understand, in the fig's season, leaves come in at or before the fig is ripe. But the fig is forming on the tree. So when leaves are on the tree, a fig possibly could be edible by then, though not fully ready, maybe weeks out. But there are some fruit that are present at least forming on the tree. But as our note says, it's not the full season of it. So as Jesus sees the leaves, he's expecting something. But there's no fruit. There is zero. There's nothing at all. 
Second clue that's going to help us is that fig trees are used in the Old Testament often to refer to uh, Israel in the Old Testament. At times connected to judgment on Israel for their sin or their rebellion or lack of faithfulness to the covenant. Like in Jeremiah who said, When I gather them, there will be no fig on the tree, and their leaves will wither, and what I gave them has passed away from them. There was no fruit in Israel. God expected fruit in their life and in his people, and there was none, and therefore judgment was coming. And Jesus, if we remember, through Mark, he's been exposing throughout Mark the error and the hypocrisy, the sin, specifically in the religious leaders throughout our book. So what, what's going on here? We begin to see and understand. D.A. Carson writes this. Jesus went to this particular tree, which stood out because it was in leaf. Its leaves advertised that it was bearing, but the advertisement was false. Jesus, unable to satisfy his hunger, saw the opportunity of teaching a memorable object lesson and cursed the tree, not because it was not bearing fruit, whether in season or out, but because it made a show of life that promised fruit, yet it was bearing none. The tree was professing fruit, but it was empty. This was, this was a warning that Jesus is showing us as we will begin to see more this parable unfolding of judgment of the temple worship. And we'll also see a fulfillment of, of something going away and something new was before them. But Malachi 3, another prophetic word is in view here. Look at verses 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like the fuller's soap. Jesus is the messenger who comes in and he enters the temple and he looks around for fruit in and among God's people. And he looked around and he saw none. He was expecting to find fruit, but it, but it was a front and there was no fruit. There was no fruit from the people of God that should be displaying the fruit. And we certainly can look at Israel and kind of shake our head at that, but I think there's, there's a, something we can draw attention even to today. His church, God's people. There's a call for God's people to embody true and faithful worship, not religious masks, not empty and vain worship where hearts are far from God, but somehow there's this presentation of fruitfulness. Jesus says, I'm looking for true worshipers who will worship me in spirit and in truth. So genuine worship from the heart through him the songs, the preaching, the prayers, the, the life of worship that we live, that, that ritual is an entrapment for any Christian church. And there is a call for us to find our hearts. Lord, Lord, where is there faithful, genuine worship that we are giving from our hearts? Well, if we were sort of just left with that text, we'd still be a little bit confused. But thankfully, the story continues to unfold into our next section, the sort of the middle of our, our sandwich. And Jesus enters into the temple, the place of Israel's worship, 
the place that, that should be sacred, the place that should be full of spiritual fruit of praise and honor to God. And, and G- Jesus enters into the temple area and, and he is not, he's not happy. Now remember, this is Passover week. We're leading up to Passover and there are crowds, there are people, there are uh, animals, there's cattle, there's, there's lambs, there's birds. Josephus, a historic, uh, historian of that time, wrote that, that the year the temple was completed, 255,000 lambs were sacrificed at Passover. So this, this was a huge deal going on. The Temple Mount area, which the temple sat on, the, the length of that was about four and a half um, field, uh, football fields in length. This area is, is massive. It's big. The temple area had several sections in it. There was, a, there was areas for the court of the Gentiles where just the Gentiles were permitted. And, and then beyond that, the court of Israel where no layman was pre- allowed, just priests. And then the sanctuary where in the Holy of Holies, where the, only the high priest was permitted. And so it's likely, we don't know exact location, but the trading and business was probably in this outer section of the court of the Gentiles. Pilgrims were coming in from all over, and so some of the money changing that is hap- would need to take place is people would not have the right coinage, and they'd have to do sort of a banking transaction in order to get correct coinage to buy sacrificial pieces to offer and pay the temple tax, purchase needed for items like animals or things for the sacrifices. It even mentions that Jesus turns over tables where they sold the pigeons or the doves. Doves would be purchased for the, by the poor um, who did, couldn't afford a lamb. And all, all of this is taking place at this sacred location, the place in the house of worship of Yahweh. The center of God's presence, the place to meet and to honor Him, the place of worship and prayer and sacrifice. And it was now a place of business, of people taking advantage of other people, of people just offering their sacrifices by simply paying a little money. It was a massive issue of spiritual corruption and And in that, the priests were the ones allowing and permitting all of this. The religious leaders that should be towing the line and promoting holiness, they were the ones encouraging and allowing. And so Jesus' condemnation was just not aimed at the corrupt business dealers, because it says that Jesus drove out those who were buying and selling. There was guilt all around. And what does Jesus do? He turns over the tables. I don't know if you've ever done that, like out of anger. I mean, of course, you've seen it in the movies. I don't. I was trying to think: Have I ever gotten so mad today? Like a whole table over. But that's some like serious emotion. Don't tell anybody if you've ever done that. By the way, I mean that, that's fierce. Throwing chairs around, knocking tables over i can imagine they weren't like you know our little plastic fold-outs that you could just carry with a finger i mean jesus is meek and gentle but meek does not equal weak and this is this is our savior and he's throwing over tables throwing chairs over driving people out he doesn't even allow any more business to take place won't even allow people to, to come in and through 
and pass through that area. He is the Lord, and this is His house. It's like Jesus is hanging up the clothes sign. Business is over here. And in his actions, he is preaching a message, but he also begins to teach, the text tells us. Just to be sure everything is clear. And what does he say in verse 17? He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple worship was not fulfilling its intended purpose. What should it be? Well, Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah. So let's let's read a few verses to kind of get some context. Verse 6 says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. What a vision! What a prophetic vision. This is the prophetic vision of Isaiah that Jesus is addressing, that this one day all people can have access to God's presence. Not just Jew, but any foreigner who believes and trusts in God's covenant, who loves Him, all can come and find joy and worship and prayer to God. Gentiles, the outcasts, the poor, All nations one day have access to love and covenant and communion with God in His presence. And as Jesus is teaching and He's pronouncing these things and and quoting Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, He again is showing that He is the one with all authority, the Son of God. He's challenging the priests and the scribes in this moment. He's setting himself above even the sacred space of this temple and saying, I am the one who's determining what this thing should and be like. As the Lord and as God, and this is God's condemnation of what's going on. This is serious and sobering. Jesus exposes the horrendous condition of the temple and its corrupt and profaning worship. And rather than welcoming all people and fulfilling this this call, the outcast, the sinner, the foreigner, they have become a blockade of worship. Barriers of people being hindered to worship and come to God. Barrier upon barrier. And yet we have been witnessing Jesus do just the opposite through Mark. He is showing us the way to God is through him, and he has been inviting the lowly of no status, the sinner, the poor, the broken, the Bartimaeuses, and he's saying, call him to me. What a contrast to this temple to what Jesus' example is. As I've been thinking and contemplating that on that very thing, just a, a challenge for my own heart, a just evaluation, say, Lord, how, where do I set up barriers from people having access to Jesus? 
We are called to model Jesus. We aren't immune to this, church. The church, as organizationally, as an institution, is not immune to this. We personally are not immune to this. We can so easily set up barriers for people to see and have access to Jesus. Like We could give off this sort of like, that a status is required to come near him. Or there's only certain types of people, clean people, not certain sins people that can come to Jesus. We can set up those barriers in these doors, and we can set up those barriers just in our neighbors who are next to us. But the gospel frees us. Jesus' example frees us to say, come, come, come. Jesus is accessible, and we're not going to put anything in your way. So, the temple, the religious leaders were not fulfilling its call as a house of prayer, and Jesus is indicting reference to them being, making a den of robbers. It's staggering. He's quoting now the prophet Jeremiah. Let's look back now. Jeremiah chapter 7 says this, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered! Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. A den is is like a hideout, right? Thieves, Thieves do their naughty thing, and then the mobsters go gather in the back of the casino in their little den, right? Except these aren't criminals, and they weren't going to Vidio Corleone's home afterward, right? These are priests, and these are pastors, and their hideout was the temple. It was condemnation like Jeremiah. For those who would lie and cheat and stole out there taking advantage of people, and then they popped into the church and said, it's all good. Aren't we delivered? only to go and do the same thing again. Hiding behind leaves, but fruitless hypocrites. This is what was going on. And Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy, uncovering what was hidden, and the leaders hate Jesus for it. They hate him for what he has done and what he's saying, and it says they were seeking to destroy him. It's getting amplified. It's being intensified. It says that they, they wanted to destroy him and they also feared him because they, they, the crowds were astonished by him. Maybe not in love with him or trusting in him, but they were astonished at what he was doing. It was a spectacle that day. The temples and the spiritual, leader, temple and the spiritual leaders were unfruitful and unready for Jesus' coming. And Jesus is, Jesus is hanging up the clothes sign out of business, right? This is done. And it's interesting that our Bibles say cleansing. 
many commentators would agree with this, that maybe it's not the most clear to capture what Jesus is doing. He was not there for renewal, but bringing something to an end. He wasn't trying to reform a dead thing. He was closing shop on one thing that was bringing and coming under judgment, and he was going to do something new. Jesus was bringing an end to something, and as Messiah came to fulfill and establish his new thing, his new covenant. David Garland just says, a new era in salvation history was about to dawn within days. So Jesus is showing us two things. First, judgment and end to the Israel's temple worship and waywardness. But also, we see Jesus communicating hope in his new way of salvation through him. This is our second section here, our third section at the end. So, what happens? They leave the temple that night. The next morning, they're passing by and they come upon the same tree. Verse 20 says, They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered. The disciples are remembering what Jesus is saying. This is beautiful. And he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The curse of the fig tree in our sort of Mark and Sandwich now becomes this symbol, this parable of God's judgment on the temple in Israel and its leaders. It's it's an undoing of that reality. And then Jesus makes a statement. It says that actually Jesus answered. It searched the cursing of the fig tree. Okay. Well, do not disturb doesn't seem to work there with Siri. She's always listening. Just like you guys to me. So Jesus makes this statement, and Jesus answered them. He answered them regarding the cursed fig tree. And this is what he answers them with. Have faith in God. Now, a simple reading of that just doesn't seem to make sense. It seems out of place. Jesus just ripped the temple to shreds. He curses a tree, and now it's there rotted before them. And Jesus answers, have faith in God. I mean, does Jesus want them to have faith to curse fig trees? I remember when I was younger, I would hear that story. I'm like, have faith to curse fig trees? Is that what Jesus is teaching us? How does this fit? Well, notice how he continues to say. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, just notice this mountain, be taken up and thrown into a sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that the Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So Jesus just spoke of prayer in the temple, that his house would be a house of prayer, And now he returns to prayer again. What is he showing us? Well, we drew attention to this, Jesus saying, this mountain. It doesn't say mountains, but this mountain. It's likely the Mount of Olives was right before the disciples as they were walking, or more likely, as they were coming in, the Temple Mount would have been before them as they were heading into the city, right there. Mountains, this phrase, was a common 
commonly used then just to relate to very difficult things, huge difficulties, things that seem impossible and hard. Now consider what just happened. Jesus undoes the temple worship. He rebukes the most important spiritual leaders in Israel and authority. He's enacted a parable of judgment on them. And we saw this tree just wither in 24 hours. What he has just done is pretty radical. Beyond imagination. Very difficult in what he has just accomplished. Unreal difficulties. Now we have to just consider, we, we, we have no recordings, Jesus might have done this, we have no recordings of Jesus praying for a certain mountain and it actually being tossed into an ocean or any record of disciples doing this. The illustration here for us is prayer or trust in God to do something by God with faith in God that seems impossible. It's a metaphor. These are not verses for us to just demand God of anything that we want. We are pr- we're called to pray in, in uh, line with God's will. If we just have enough faith, God will do and is obligated to do whatever we ask. That's not what this is saying. This is about prayer, like informing us on how to pray. We could do a whole sermon just on this text regarding different areas and of prayer and the ways God meets us in prayer. But I want to just, with our time, draw attention to what I think this, how this connects to the text that we've been working through. Jesus has been establishing his authority over all of Israel in the most sacred place of all of Israel, in the temple. He is Lord. He is God. Our next section next week, it's all about Jesus' authority being challenged by the religious leaders. And he's, he establish, he's establishing his new covenant, his, his new way of worship. And he's doing this by hanging the clothes sign on the temple. So Jesus is teaching us on the boldness we can have in prayer, confidence that we can ask and that he hears. But it's rooted on Jesus showing us why that is possible. Jesus is showing us that the temple will no longer provide ongoing ritual of blood and sacrifice to make people right before God. Which gives someone the ability to even pray to God. A temple of stones and of wood will not be a location or the conduit which God displays His glory or provides mediation or atonement for His people anymore. If not by the temple, then then by what? By whom? Jesus is coming in to fulfill what God's people need to access him. Jesus would very soon prophesy that that temple, those stones and everything, would be destroyed. And in 70 AD, it would be leveled. Where would people find atonement? Where would people find access to pray and to worship and find forgiveness of sins? By the one who would give his life as a ransom. Jesus will do this. Jesus was heading to his cross days away. And on that cross, later in Mark, it says, chapter 15, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They were mocking him for his confession that it would be destroyed and that it would be rebuilt. But of course, we know that Jesus was not speaking of the stones in that temple. He was speaking of his body. In three days, he would die and he would rise. 
so that all men and all women and all nations could come now to God. Where did we see recently this idea of the impossible? Well, the disciples were asking about this encounter with a rich man, how difficult it would be for someone to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, well, it's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. What does that analogy mean? The camel through the eye of a needle. Impossible, right? But it's a, it's a camel going through the eye of a needle. I was just echoing Josh. He just wanted to make that point. It's not like a symbol for something else. It, it's, it's actually a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. This is impossible. And then they say, what, how then can we be saved? How then can we be saved with such a demand for the gospel on us? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus is saying, guys, don't worry. What seems impossible, me casting you, praying and casting a mountain into the sea. It, this brick and mortar being thrown into the, to the sea, being done away with, its desolation is coming, but salvation is not gone. Accessing my prayer, pray, my presence will not be gone. It's actually going to be, the door is going to be open wide. The door is going to be open wide. It's not a physical temple, but it's by faith in God and in turn Jesus. He is the way of atonement, the way into God's presence. That's why we read in Revelation chapter 21, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Jesus was condemning the distorted thing this worship had become and bringing an end to the sacrifices in the temple. He's saying the old is gone. He's saying the new is before you. And there is now access for Jew and Greek and Gentile and pagan. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that all people could come by him, the final priest, the final mediator, the lamb slain, and through him, worship of God, the true God, could take place. That's why we can't overlook the way Jesus concludes this on forgiveness. Verse 25, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also... If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That temple at one point was the only place somebody could find forgiveness in. The one before them, what he would do, would provide forgiveness. Commenting, Donald English says, the culture of prayer is the forgiving spirit. Since God's forgiveness of us is the essential ground over which we approach him in prayer, a lack of a forgiving spirit on our part destroys the atmosphere in which prayer is offered and answered. So the line from the fig tree story through faith and prayer to forgiveness is clearly recognizable. That's why have faith in God now makes sense. It is tied to our relationship by God by the way of redemption in Jesus Christ. Not a location, not a building, but an identity, a standing by grace in Jesus. Therefore, all bar barriers are removed. So now, wherever you are, believer, you can be standing at home and you can be praying and finding forgiveness. You can be at work. You can be driving in your car. We can be in a community theater at, in Shaska, and we can be celebrating what our ransom 
Jesus' ransom has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. We can find forgiveness. We can find worship. We can experience prayer and know with confidence. We cry out to God bold prayers and He hears our prayers. And all people are welcome. Jesus welcomes us to come in faith and ask and we can find communion with God. Jesus came to bring closure to Israel's temple worship And it is a sobering warning, this text, for us to pursue genuine and faithful worship. Hypocrisy wouldn't be among God's people, but we look to him. And in fulfillment, Jesus becomes the one who makes it possible for all people to come to him and worship. The welcome sign is open with Jesus, not closed. And it's for all people. So now his church then becomes a house of prayer. She means a house of worship, full of faith and belief, belief, forgiven people of all nations. Now God uses institutions and organizations and denominations, but they don't save. They don't save. And if you, all of us have been impacted, and if you've been watching the news, man, there's a lot going on regarding all kinds of religious institutions and all that shaking, what do, we, what do we do? What should we remember? Jesus. Jesus is my way. Jesus is my way. Jesus is my hope. We look to Christ and we pursue faithful worship with Him, with our hearts, genuinely moving towards Him in faith and in hope, celebrating our forgiveness, forgiven status, welcoming others into that wonderful place where they can approach God boldly. What a gift. What a gift, church. Let's pray and thank God for that. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can pray. Thank you that we, you told us have faith in God. And we can have faith and we can, we can come to you and know that our sins have been forgiven. And we can, we can forgive others, Lord, even those who have sinned horribly against us. Because, Lord, the debt that we owed was insurmountable. And Jesus, you paid that debt. We owe you nothing, and so therefore, since we've been released of our debt, Jesus, Lord, we can release others of debt as well, and our status now in you, Jesus, is forgiven and loved, washed, and Lord, we can, we can pray, we can pray bold prayers, we can come in, and we can worship you here on Sunday at the community center, and we can, we can wake up in our pajamas tomorrow morning. <laughs> and worship you and experience the grace and beauty of forgiveness. So thank you for making a way, Lord. Thank you for making a way. Would you continue to build in us, cross in us as your God's people, and us as cross of grace, Lord, hearts that would be genuine in our worship, in those moments where we all could be prone to just leaf fruit (laughs) and there not be something under there, Lord, just allow there to be a, an integrity about our worship, Lord. We can all drift. Help us, Spirit. And help us to be a, a church, Lord, that there aren't barriers that we put up, hurdles for people to jump over in order to come to you, Jesus. We'd, we'd, we'd model and embody, Lord, the, the, the wonderful grace and mercy we have been given by being welcomed in as foreigners. <laughs> so thank you, Lord. 
Amen. Amen.